There are different versions of the quotation, but it's said at one time that Mahatma Gandhi stated something to a Christian along the lines of these words, I am in love with your Christ, I am not in love with your Christian. Now certainly, if we were to analyze what Gandhi said, we would probably say that his view of Jesus Christ would have been a skewed one. And so we can argue whether or not uh, that leader in India would have really wanted to fall in love, or really was in love, with the true Jesus that we see in Scripture. The Jesus who, yes, showed love and mercy, but who also railed against religious error. But still, the point that he was making is one that we can understand. And it's a point that we have probably heard someone say before, maybe not in such perfect language or beautiful language, but we understand the point that's being made. And that's simply this, that it's sometimes true that the least attractive part of Christianity can be those who wear the name of Jesus Christ. Now, before you get defensive, let me say, I don't have anybody in mind as I say that, okay? But sometimes we need to make sure we understand that people see us before they see the truth. And we need to honestly evaluate ourselves. And to do that, tonight we're going to look at just a very short passage of Scripture from a very short book in the New Testament. If you'll turn your Bible back to that little book of 3 John, just a few verses long, we're not going to even study the whole book. We're going to study just two people who are mentioned in that book. It is very important that we hold to, that we teach, and that we defend what we often refer to as sound doctrine. There are certain things that we must do, and there are certain things that we must avoid. God has made those things clear. Any attempt to change, for example, the pattern of New Testament worship, the plan of salvation as it's laid out in Scripture, any attempt to change those sorts of things are are wrong, but they're also futile because God has told us exactly what it means to follow Him in those ways. And changing those things may draw a crowd for a while, or they may salve a conscience for a while, but we know they will not be pleasing to the Lord. But that said, there is also a side of Christianity that we must live before the world each and every day. And what we see in this little book of Third John is brief, but a very eye-opening description of two men, and how these two men show us both sides of what it means to live for Christ daily. One, through his way of living, was threatening to destroy a congregation, while the other, through his way of living, refreshed a congregation. And let me emphasize that both of these men were Christians. This is not the case of some outsider trying to destroy a congregation because he hates God's people. Instead, there's one who wears the name of Christ, who is threatening to tear things apart, while another who wears the name of Christ is faithfully living out the words of Jesus and the teachings of the gospel. I know which one I would rather be. I know which one you would rather be, I hope. But we need to evaluate ourselves tonight and ask, am I Diotrephes or am I Demetrius? We want to just simply notice the description found of of these two men in this little book and ask ourselves honestly, ask myself honestly, which am I really in God's evaluation? When you look at Diotrephes, the one that we read about a few minutes ago, you really see how arrogance can destroy a church. You know, our faith is a very personal thing. We love Christ. 
We love His church. We hopefully love the congregation where we worship. But if we're not careful, we can fall into a trap of of wanting not just what Christ wants, but also what I want. Instead of making sure that what we teach and even our personal attitudes are always in line with Scripture. It's that lack of a proper attitude that can lead to all sorts of problems. And that's what we see in the case of this man that we read about, Diotrephes. All of his problems, all of his attitudes stem from one thing that's said about him in 3 John verse 9, where we're told that he likes to put himself first. The, the NIV translates this as he loves to be first. That attitude, that issue, is the root of all sin, and that is pride. I want what I want, and I'll cross any border to get what I want. Here is a man who, for some reason, as the King James Version puts it, wanted the preeminence in the church. He he didn't just want to win some political office. He didn't want to be president of some civic club. His heart was callous enough that he was seeking a place of preeminence among God's people. Now, even that description alone, just that one phrase, would be enough for us to have a sermon about this man and also make certain that we are checking ourselves. Is that my mindset? Am I trying to seek some glamour through the church? But John goes further in this little brief letter. In a very brief description of this man Diotrephes, he takes the time to list why he would say this man was seeking the preeminence or loving to be first. The, the things that he was doing. Now, John would have known that Obviously, the original readers to whom this little letter was written needed to have this list before them. They needed to see this because they needed to have their eyes open to what was really happening right in their midst. And so it could be dealt with. But you and I need to see this same list as well because we need to evaluate ourselves. We don't need to evaluate somebody that sits across the auditorium or that person over there. I need to evaluate me and make certain that I'm not walking down the same trail of things that can destroy a congregation. In these verses, John lists four things about this man. First, Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority, is the way the English Standard Version translates it. The hour in that statement, I believe, to be the apostles. Now, whether this is meant that Diotrephes was writing, uh, arguing with something an apostle had written, or whether he went face-to-face with one of the apostles, we're not told that. But what we do know is that John is making it clear that he did not respect the authority of, the teachings of, the apostles. And you may think, well, that's, that's no big deal. That's no problem today. Oh, it certainly is a problem in our day and time. We live in a society, religious society, that tells us basically that if it didn't actually come from the lips of Jesus, then we don't have to worry about it. All we have to worry about are, if you please, the red letters. Everything else is just cultural or everything else was just meant for, for those people, or because those things are so out of step, what Paul wrote or what Peter wrote, those things are so out of step with our modern society that we can just throw those things away and just hold to the teachings that Jesus himself said. Of course, that then leads to all, all types of compromises in the New Testament because it's in the writings of Paul, for example, that you have specific references to homosexuality being a sin to male leadership in the church, and on and on we could go. And so we just reject those things because Jesus didn't actually say those. These are just the words of an apostle. They're not the words of Jesus. If Jesus said it, we'll defend that and we'll teach that. But folks, we also must defend and teach what the apostles wrote. All of it is Scripture. And Jesus even said that the Holy Spirit would lead the apostles 
to teach all truth in John chapters 15 and 16. And so when Jesus said that, he gave his authority to the apostles' writings. And so, yes, today we still have this problem. And it can be tempting at times to see something in those black letters, if you please, in the New Testament and say, well, that's not as important when it certainly is. But second, verse 10 also says that Diotrephes was talking wicked nonsense against the apostles. If you're reading from the King James, you have one of the greatest King James words ever. He was prating against us, which is a word I have never used until right now. He was prating against us. The NIV translates it that he was gossiping maliciously. Gossip is a horrible thing. And gossip can absolutely destroy the fabric, if you please, of a congregation or, for that matter, any other relationship. You may find it interesting to know where this word gossip or prating or talking wicked nonsense, where this word came from. It's actually fascinating. It was a word that it came from the action that occurs in water that produces bubbles that then burst on the top of the water. And you think, how in the world does that become gossip? Because what do those bubbles contain? Nothing. And the word gossip then became the idea of talking about nothing. Talking idle talk. Gossip is not just telling stories about someone else. That's what we always think of, right? The word gossip really means idle talk. Just talk, just, just chattering. Just not saying much of anything. Talk that doesn't amount to things. But when you think about what Diotrephes was being accused of here, he was saying things about the apostles, about brothers and sisters in Christ. May I ask, what good does it do to talk about a brother or sister in Christ when I should be talking to a brother or sister in Christ? It does absolutely no good. That's the idea behind this man's sin or one of the things listed here by John. We need to stop gossip. But it's a personal decision that I'm not going to talk about someone else. I'm going to talk to someone else. When gossip is allowed to go on, it will undermine the spirit of a congregation. It will destroy the family atmosphere that the Lord so much desires of a congregation. And over time, it will destroy the spirituality of God's people. Third, Diotrephes refused to welcome brothers. He showed a lack of hospitality. John is probably likely talking here about traveling preachers in that time or possibly about Christians who are being scattered about by persecution. Either one could be the case. But whichever it is, this man Diotrephes refused to welcome some who very clearly were brothers and sisters in Christ, who were Christians. What he was showing was a lack of compassion, a lack of hospitality toward others. Very recently in a sermon, we talked about hospitality, so I'm not going to belabor that point. But opening our, our homes and opening our lives to others is a sign that we're opening our hearts to them as well. As I was preparing for this lesson, I came across a very short list of some things that we need to make sure we do as we seek to show hospitality to others. This person listed four things that I adapted the wording of. They said, first of all, be welcoming to all. In other words, don't just pick and choose who you're going to say hello to or who you're going to open your heart to. Be welcoming to all. Number two, they said to show Christ to all. We need to invite people into our lives not just to show them ourselves, but to show them the Jesus that we serve, the one who hopefully lives through us. When you are with others, do you pray? 
When you're with others, do you talk about your faith? When you're with others, do you talk up the church? Three, they said, to have a centerpiece. And it took me a second to figure out what they meant. What they basically meant was have a reason for coming together. Maybe a meal, maybe an event, but it's something that tells that person, you're important enough to me that I've thought of you to have this meal, or I've thought of you to plan this evening or this time together. And then four, be attentive. Really listen. Listen for issues that they are facing that Jesus can heal. Listen for victories that you can help them celebrate. Listen for frustrations that you can share, burdens you can share with them. But whatever it is, seek to show hospitality. Open our lives. And then fourthly, this man very infamously was putting people out of the church. One scholar in writing about this phrase said this. He said, quote, Diotrephes is said to have insisted that others in the church follow his lead rather than that of the apostle and also to have exercised unwarranted discipline over those who disobeyed him, end quote. Now, we could go so far as to say that Diotrephes was somebody who felt the church basically needed one man rule. And he would think, I'm that man. I'm the one. Or if we don't want to go that far, we could say he was at least insisting that things be his way instead of the way the apostles had set up. And when things did not go his way, he wanted people out. He had become, in a sense, a Pharisee among the early church. Now, I really doubt that any of us would go that far. I'm going to try to throw somebody out of the church personally. But may I make a point of application? If we are not careful... We can simply treat people in an improper way that don't do things exactly the way I think they need to be done. I can give them the cold shoulder because maybe they just don't look like me or talk like me or maybe they don't know as much about the Bible as me or maybe they don't dress exactly like I do and I'm not really comfortable with them sitting near me in the auditorium or even on the other side, quite frankly. And so I'll give them the cold shoulder. That is absolutely unbecoming of God's people. We need to be very, very careful that we are only, to borrow the words of Jesus, binding and loosing what Scripture binds and looses. Well, that we're not insisting that people follow my whims and my ways and my traditions as if those things are equal with what the Lord Himself has said. Now, when we consider these things listed by John about Diotrephes, do you see how these things can destroy a congregation by just eating away at it? It's not a one-time thing. It's not just false doctrine. False doctrine is what Jesus himself said will lead to him removing our lampstand in the book of Revelation. But the things listed here are things that just eat away over time at the very fabric of a congregation. They destroy trust. They tear away at harmony. And any Christian... Any Christian, if we're not careful, can begin to walk down the path of these things if we let our attitudes get out of sorts. If we're not spending time seeking wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, the humility that He will give us, and spending time asking Him for us to make certain that I am in the right and that I am making certain that I am humble. We have to avoid the arrogance, the pride that we're on display in this man And I don't know how many sermons, how many articles I've read or heard that talk about diatrophies and and list all these things. In fact, I've even read series where each one of these things was pointed out for, for hundreds and hundreds of words. But what's interesting is that's not where John stops. He doesn't just stop with the negative. He doesn't just point out this one person, this negative person, and say, this is how bad things are. Because immediately on the heels of that, he turns the coin over and begins to talk about a man named Demetrius. And how humility can refresh a church. Verse 12 
says of this man, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, I also personally believe that verse 11 that we skipped is meant to start the contrast between these two men. Diotrephes, the one we just studied, is clearly an evil influence, but he had some level of power. And we can be drawn to power even if it's someone who has false motives. And so in verse 11, John writes, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. The word imitate there comes from the word we, from which we get our word mimic. And with that one little word, good, imitate, mimic what is good, John shares that description we just read in verse 12 about the man named Demetrius. This one verse is all we know about Demetrius. But this one verse should be enough to have our admiration. While Diotrephes was seeking to have a high place to put himself first, Demetrius, it seems, was not as well known, or at least did not seek the recognition. But still, Gaius, to whom this short letter is addressed, would have known this man and is told to mimic, to imitate his, good, his goodness. And why? Because he's received a good testimony. The King James Version has a good report. Notice that there are, there's nothing said about Demetrius asking for that recognition. There's nowhere does it say that you make sure you tell Demetrius that I'm answering his question to see how good he's doing. Nowhere is that found. But it's impossible to avoid giving a good testimony, a good word about him. And again, John goes even further. Because he doesn't just say there is a good testimony about him. Instead, he shares three things that give that good testimony. First, and in a very generic way, he says that everyone gives a good testimony. The King James Version has all men. The text literally just says all, all give a good testimony. Wayne Jackson writes about Demetrius, quote, has an excellent reputation among all acquainted with him. There is no mark against him. Your mind might go back to the qualifications of elders. That says that they're to have a good reputation to all those who are without. Or it might turn to the qualification of elders that says they are to be blameless. The idea is not that, that elders are perfect, but that you, you can't hold something against them because they're going to make sure that they're going to make it right. That's the same idea behind this saying that all people or everyone has a good testimony about this man. The only testimony they could give about him is that he does what's right. That's all they can say about him. Typically, the more humbly that a person lives out his or her faith, the less negative people have to say about that person. That's not to say they never speak out for their faith because we must and they will. But it's simply that they're not seeking recognition for themselves. They're not seeking attention all the time. They are simply consistent with what they say and how they live. Even if someone doesn't like what that person stands for, they can't hold anything against that person because they're consistent and humble. They're not hypocritical. They're not arrogant. And so John, by inspiration, could say, all, everyone, has good testimony about this man named Demetrius. And then he could go so far as to say, even the truth itself could testify of his good life. I love this wording, that the truth itself could stand to the witness. It's as if Paul, John is saying that if you could make truth a person, it would take the witness stand and say, I agree with everything Demetrius does, or every way in which Demetrius lives. Now, as a point of application, we need to ask ourselves, I need to ask myself, 
that if truth were called as a witness of my life, would it say, he's following me? And we also need to make sure that we understand that that's how we will be judged in the last day. Because Jesus in John 12 and verse 48 said, The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him or judge you in the last day. Would truth testify about my life that I'm consistent with truth? Or would it stand in stark contrast? This man, Demetrius, had an apostle who could say that his life was a living embodiment of the truth. Diotrephes may have been the one who was more well-known and may have even had a stronger position, but truth could not say this about him. This is not about position. Christianity is about embodying the truth. And then just in case someone reading this short letter says, well, you're just picking someone out, you're just pulling something out of your hat, just pulling something out of the air, John puts his own reputation on the line and says even the apostles... Even the God-given leaders can give a good testimony about this man. Now, we don't have a modern-day direct parallel because we don't have apostles today. But I do think we have a point of application for all Christians. We mentioned several weeks ago that in the early church you had prophets and apostles. And it seems that prophets were replaced or slowly replaced by evangelists or preachers. And apostles replaced in a local sense, a congregational sense, by elders by shepherds. I need to ask myself, what would my shepherds, the ones who look after my soul, say about my life? Would they have to kind of hem-haul around and have to think for a while to think of something good to say? Or would they say, I don't have to worry about that one. His life, her life, is the embodiment of truth. They're just faithful. Remember that we're commanded in the book of Hebrews to live in such a way that our elders can serve with joy. I think this is one way that works itself out. That anytime someone asks about me or asks about you, can, can the elders just immediately say, that's one who's just living a faithful life. Could the elders say that about you? Those God-appointed leaders, could they say that about my life? Now we're saying this about Demetrius, that this refreshes the church. Do you see how that's true? If no one can say anything negative about a member of the family of God, if the truth itself would testify that their life is holy and pure, and if the leaders, those who shepherd our souls, would agree that this is one I don't have to worry about, that their, lives, their life is just righteous, how refreshing is that? But notice that we're contrasting that with Diotrephes. You see, Demetrius wasn't seeking this evaluation. He wasn't asking some type of proof that he was faithful. In his humility, it seems, he was simply living a faithful Christian life. And John, an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, took note and took notice. How refreshing would it be to see that among God's people today? And so, the question, am I Diotrephes or am I Demetrius? Well, it's easy to say, well, of course, Demetrius, I saw the lists, right? I mean, that's easy. Uh, no problem here on Sunday night. That's as easy as all get out. And I hope that's true. But may I remind all of us that if we're honest, probably each one of us does or has at times fought the temptation of pride that Diotrephes gave into to have things my way all the time. 
You see what John is really doing in these verses, talking about Diotrephes and then Demetrius. What he's really doing is giving a human example of what Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verse 30. The first shall be last, and the last first. He is writing an example of what Mary said in Luke 1 and verse 52, that God brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He is pointing out that Paul was right when he said that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27. The key is to see the church as a family that belongs to the Lord, not as a place to get my way. The key is to see the church as a place to belong and be connected, not as a place to get ahead. The key is to see the church as my brothers and sisters, not my subordinates. The key is to see the church as a place where we together honor and follow the way of Christ, not where my own personal whims become the standard. Several years ago, there was a reception in Britain honoring a musician named Robert Mayer. It was his 100th birthday. And it was an elderly British socialite at that reception named Lady Diana Cooper. And she fell into a conversation with a very friendly woman who, who seemed to know her very well, but she couldn't place who this person was. Lady Diana herself was also older, and her eyesight was failing her, and she couldn't quite make out the guest until she got very close and got a look at the absolutely magnificent diamonds and realized that, she, that the guest she was talking to was Queen Elizabeth herself. And overcome with embarrassment... Lady Diana Cooper curtsied as she was supposed to, and the story goes that she was able just to stammer out a few words that said, Ma'am, oh ma'am, I'm sorry ma'am, I didn't recognize you without your crown. To which the queen very wisely and humbly replied, It was so much Sir Robert's evening that I decided to leave my crown behind. There are too many people who wear the name of Christ, who are seeking our own way, even in the church, who are seeking earthly crowns. When Christ has told us the only crown that matters is the one He will give in glory. Am I a Diotrephes? Or am I a Demetrius? Only I, looking at the pages of Scripture, can answer that question for myself. Only each of you individually, by examining your life in the light of Scripture, can answer that question for yourself. But may I challenge all of us tonight to never see church as a place where I just get in my way but a place filled with servants. That's what this is about. So tonight all I ask is, are you a servant? Are you a servant? Have you given your life to Christ fully? Not just the actions, but the attitude and the mindset as well. Seeking to serve Him through the church that so beautifully bears His name. Tonight, if you're a Christian, are you serving Him or are you seeking to be served? 
Jesus went to the cross and he asks us to bear one. Jesus died and he asks us to die to self. Jesus arose and he asks us to rise to be servants. And Jesus sits on the right hand of the throne of God, not so I can get my way, but so I can honor his way. Tonight, you need to return to that path. Or tonight, if you're not a Christian, do you need to be baptized, to be buried in water, to give your life, to give your life to him fully in service? Whatever your need is tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.